We pretty much use just about every single product that uh, Iron Source offers. We're, we're completely integrated with the platform. Of course, the mediation products, all ad, ad products, and the company that can assist us in doing UA and monetization and all the uh, additional products that come along with it. It takes a lot of uh, headache away from us. It takes a lot of the hard, busy work off of our hands, having a kind of an all-in-one platform. You just heard Andrew Stone. He's the CEO at Random Logic Games, who use IronSource's platform to grow their games in the smartest way possible. If you want to grow like Random Logic, you can get the SDK on IronSource's website. That's ironsrc.com. We all know it. Mobile marketing is going through a paradigm shift. With the industry moving towards a more aggregate way of measuring marketing efforts, Marketers' ability to measure and understand the impact of their marketing investments is further curtailed. AppsFlyer, though, is not sitting on the sidelines. The company has set a goal to help their customers and the entire mobile ecosystem to successfully navigate the new era of mobile marketing. And that's where AppsFlyer's latest product, the incrementality solution, comes to play. It's a product that truly empowers marketers to gain a better understanding of the real value that their marketing efforts hold. AppsFlyer's incrementality solution is built around remarketing. It simplifies the process of designing, executing, and analyzing incremental lift tests at scale, which previously was something that only the biggest players on the market were able to do. With with incrementality, marketers can focus on the end goal of their test without actually having to worry about the heavy lifting that comes with it. To learn more about incrementality and to read the success stories from publishers like Kabam, I suggest that you head out to appsflyers.com. This episode is brought to you by Facebook Gaming. Facebook Gaming is building the world's gaming community by helping game makers, developers, and publishers to build, grow, and monetize their games. They do do this by providing research-based insights, in-depth case studies, as well as wide variety of educational materials. A recent example of this is Games Marketing Insights for 2021, a report that has just been released and is available to download for free right now. Of course, Facebook Gaming also helps developers and publishers of all sizes to deploy powerful UA and monetization strategies through a range of innovative solutions designed for games marketers in every corner of the industry. Go to fb.gg forward slash DOF for in-depth educational materials, including playbooks, webinars, blogs, and reports, as well as great video content. Hey, and welcome everybody to This Week in Games, episode 139. We got three out of four of the crew. So Adam Telfer is taking a break because we're going to talk about certain companies that he's very close to. Uh, But we've got both of the Eric's, Eric Sufert, Eric Kress, who just turned 50, by the way. Happy birthday. (laughs) And myself, Mishki Yatkov, I'm I'm back, um, you know, from a little paternity break. How's everybody doing? How, how was 50? Oh, eh, we had a big party at my house. Uh, I have a twin brother, people didn't know. So we had a twin birthday party for 50. Um, and yes, we look identical. So there's two of us, which I'm the evil twin, of course. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> but I don't know, 50 is not that big a deal. And I'm actually in really good shape, so I feel really good. So it's not really that, that big deal. But for anybody who gives a shit, 
I did not even get close to my target of 15 by 50, but I give my, I'm giving myself another year because I can still be 15 and 50 for another year. So I know that's a cheat, but lesson learned. The only way that I'm going to get to that level is stop drinking. And so that's what I'm going to do for the next uh, six months to a year is stop the booze, but, and keep the same activity level and, and diet. So anyway, that, that, that is where I'm at with that. If anybody cares, some people have been asking, but, but no one really cares. I'm sure. Uh, but yeah, 50 is no big deal. Uh, but you know, people have I'm retiring. I'm, I have to retire by the time I'm 60, dude. That's the goal. So 10, 10 more years of the grind. Yeah, that, that, that's, it's an interesting end date type thing. And, uh, Kids are getting older and ignoring me, so that's good. So, yeah. <laughs> Sufer, how close are you to fifteen percent? Or like, are you? <laughs> Wait, so so fifty percent of what? body fat? Like, is that is that? All? <laughs> oh man, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to know. Probably, probably oh, for the record. Close. So yeah, yeah. So the, for the record, I got to like twenty six or something. Like and and like I was at like thirty two. So I'm definitely I got healthy, right? I got underneath the obese metric right how is um, it measured how did you guys measure it well there's scales and then I, I there's there's these tests that you can do but uh you know it's just yeah I, I i did i did the test when i started working with my personal trainer they just i mean they use they use like calipers and stuff and then they oh, have yeah, like that's yeah, ratios it's not very scientific but there's this um oh man i'm blanking on the name there's this lab in the u.s they have locations all over where you go in and you do like a full body scan and mm -hmm. yeah, yeah i did that's like your you did oh you did that okay so I you did didn't that, do the yeah. old school yeah and you can no. do that and i think that's much more accurate yeah, yeah. and the uh... anyway well all right moving on because i, I don't think any but this is all that interesting um all right i i do have a few updates right oh. and some corrections because oh. the worst thing you could do with this thing is not prepare and that's what happened last week because i was in hawaii so i really did make a mistake and it was a stupid mistake because i actually knew this because i, I lived it we were, we were looking at this thing um so the, the Spider-Man rights, right? So I was wrong, right? Sony has the rights to the movies in perpetuity because they bought it out from Marvel when they were about ready to go bankrupt, right? When they were completely mismanaged. I was thinking at the time that they had the rights to the games as well as the movies, but that is not the case. That is not the case. They were not tied. Because if I had actually prepared and thought about it, it was like a huge deal. It's because Activision had the rights to the Spider-Man games and they were freaking terrible games that they made, amazing Spider-Man games were freaking awful, right? And so this deal I think was put together and they pulled the rights out of Activision and gave them to Sony. And it was part of Marvel's overall licensing strategy. And Marvel actually did have a great licensing strategy at the time. They weren't building their own games like Disney, right? So anyway, so this along with the Star Wars license to EA were the best deals that they've ever made at Disney um, uh, and and obviously they've had a lot of success on mobile as well. All right, so that was one thing. Um, the other clarification I wanna make with Microsoft Game Pass is that when I was doing analysis for a few, few of the companies that everyone knows, um, I actually did make this call that Microsoft would be the only company that would be successful at building a subscription model, right? And for a variety of reasons, I'm not gonna go into it deep here. So I believe that they could actually execute against this. Whether it's good for the industry is a question. Right, generally speaking, but um, but the reason is because they they're they're the only ones with the platform, the ability to make content and 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 build a compelling service on the tech side. Right, EA can't do it because they just don't have a platform. Amazon couldn't do it, et cetera. Google was it was going to be a nightmare. So that was the call way back when. 
Um, but from a financial perspective, it still doesn't make sense, right? The profitability is going to be a challenge with the subscription model because this is not Netflix, right? Everyone kind of tries to compare it to Netflix. The content is not geared towards a broad mass market audience. That is the fundamental problem here, right? This is a very core type offering that is only the total addressable market is like a couple hundred million people, right? Um, so the content is what the, the, the challenges with scaling this type of business is this, and this is where their models fall apart. So I just wanna be clear on that. Um, now, what we're seeing is that the distribution side of it is actually even expanding even more with this new announcement with Windows 11 that Microsoft is integrating uh, Game Pass and Xbox that's a huge thing, right? So now they have the capability of distribution. Now they just need to build the content to attract a broader audience. And I think they could get there, right? That, I mean, it's definitely possible, right? And if you look 10 to 20 years from now, all right, I, I get it. But in the short term, I think they're gonna have some challenges, but it doesn't matter. And the reason that Microsoft, the reason that Microsoft could do this is because they don't care if it's profitable or not, right? They're thinking long-term, right? Sony does not have that luxury. EA does not have that luxury, right? So that's, that's, I want to be clear there. So the last one update for me is app loving, right? You know, I've been talking trash about app loving because they, because they're so overvalued. It's ridiculous, right? All right. So this is like, this is like com shit all over again, right? So app loving got a double downgrade from Morgan Stanley from like a strong buy to a, basically a sell in their, in their model. This is the only negative rating that Mike, that, 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 that uh, Morgan Stanley has. And to what makes this worse is that Morgan Stanley was the lead underwriter. So they're the ones that were pumping the shit up for like six months into the IPO. And the minute that they can downgrade it, they downgrade it double, right? Because they said exactly what I've been saying is that 85% of their business is mobile games. And that doesn't deserve this kind of multiple, right? They're preferred Zynga and Playtika of all things, right? Because, and then, and then unity for this network space, which is, I, I disagree with that too, because I don't think they understand that as well. So they're just calling them out and it's ridiculous. And I think the actually other, other underwriter downgraded them as well, right? So this is exactly what happened during the dot-com era in which these Mary Meeker, who's still around and all these other analysts were just pumping the stocks up saying, you know, look at this DCF like 30 years from now and, and we'll see what happens, right? And then the minute they're like, they get their, they get their fees and they get their money and they get their, you know, the credibility. And then they just fucking just shellac the company by saying it's overvalued. Right. So anyway, buyer beware of app loving. This is not a good time for iron source to go public. Right. This is like the worst time. Right. Because now they went public yesterday. And so now that this double downgrade from, uh, from the lead underwriter comes out. Um, I bet Goldman Sachs is probably part of the, I got to look that up from Iron Source. Oh no, they did it. They did a SPAC, right? Never mind. Anyway, so this is a bad time for Iron Source to go out there. Um, so anyway, what do you think, Seifer? You, Seifer, you, you cover this stuff. Um, well, just just one, not 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 speaking to this uh, specifically, but you know the research teams and the investment banking teams are different, right? And there is a Chinese wall. So, I mean, that was dude, uh, it's freaking paper thin, dude. I mean, I, I, I don't know. Well, uh, but uh, my so my my first ever job was I was doing oil and gas investment banking and there literally was a wall between us, our cubes and the, the research team cube. So, you, I mean, you could, there was a door too, but you could go through there. That's where we had to, to go to use the Bloomberg, but uh, there was a wall. It was a literal, you know, wall. <laughs> um, oh, I'm gonna, so I have a, I have actual um, uh, a correction too. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, Voodoo acquiring Bidshake. And um, I think I mentioned at the time, I wasn't super familiar with BitShake's business. 
And we had talked about that as part of the content fortress strategy. I actually got a really gracious uh, uh, LinkedIn message from the co-founder of BitShake, uh, Alexandra Palacci. I hope I'm not uh, mispronouncing that too badly. Um, and I'll just read what she wrote. She wrote, I was flattered to hear our name mentioned on the Deconstructor of Fun podcast. I also realized that there was some misconception about what we are doing. For example, we are not a, dat a data aggregator, but an automation platform. We are not gathering any user level data, IDFAs, Google IDs. So not sure how helpful we'll be in building Voodoo's content fortress. So I wanted to, I just wanted to issue that correction. Um, you know, never, never going to be anyone's intention on the podcast to misrepresent a business. Mm -hmm. Sorry if that happens. Um, and that happened in this case. So just, just updating that, that uh, BidShake is not a data aggregator. They don't, they don't aggregate user level data. So essentially BidShake is like Luna Labs. Would that be a, co you know, correct version? So they I, optimize. I don't want to, I don't want to have to do a second correction. So I'm not even going <laughs> to speculate. I, 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 I'm, I, I don't, I'm, I'm just not familiar with BidShake's business. So I, okay. I don't, I, I don't want to say anymore. So anybody so, from so BidShake. Please, please inform us what you guys do. And if you want to jump on a podcast and kind of uh, explain in more details what you guys do, uh, we're happy to have you. I love these corrections that comes directly from the source. <laughs> how, how bad does that make us look, right? Like, they're just like, dude, you guys don't know what the fuck you're talking about, right? That, that's exactly what happened with this licensing thing, man. Like, someone really close to it was like, dude, what the fuck are you talking about, dude? That, just, that didn't happen. <laughs> Spider-Man, that, whatever. Anyway, so it's really cool that uh, we get like, immediate feedback so keep it coming anyway so let's go through through some, oh. some other updates uh, before we got a bunch of things wrong so uh, i was reading um newsu's report that they did together with arm uh, that's uh, that is titled high-end mobile games surging worldwide so new newsu finds graphically intensive and complex game now more than one-third of the revenue from the top 200 titles in the western markets uh, the report was done together with ARM. It's a semiconductor and naturally the uh, interest to show that the demand for high-end hardware is increasing through the demand of high-end games uh, is there on the background. Um, the term high fidelity that they use in this report is used to describe titles that, quote, feature advanced graphics and or complex mechanics and gameplay, whether there be MMO, MOBAs, 3D shooters, 3D, 4X strategy games, or other genres often referred to as core games. So for example, Machine Zone game, uh, which everybody would be familiar with, now an app-loving game, would be categorized as high fidelity game, even though on the, uh, well, on the front end, it's quite simplistic, of course, in the back end, it's incredibly complex. This report was focused on the US, EU, and China. And essentially, this 47-page report, I haven't read through it uh, yet. It's, you know, it's well-made, like all the news reports. It basically says that high-fidelity games are becoming more and more popular in the Western markets, and they refer to Chinese market as an example, where uh, the, uh, the high-fidelity games are making, I might be misquoting, but I think it's, it's already over 70% of all the revenue. And in the, uh, in the Western market has gone from like 3% to 33% uh, since 2016. Uh, so they're kind of showing that this is the trend line and we are trailing behind the Asian markets. Now, I would also, <sighs> what they do, don't do in this, in this report, at least I haven't gotten to that page, is look at the downloads because it's not as simplistic in the Western market where you can just say that the revenue, like this is the revenue graph and that this is how it's changing in top 200. Because if you look at the downloads, casual games still account for like three out of four 
downloads in, in the West, and they also don't look at ad revenue. So especially hyper casuals are really dominating in the West. And I would say that the market is more towards dichotomy, where we have the growth of these core games, the Call of Duties, the, uh, the Warframe, Warpath, and so forth. But we also have a massive growth of casual sector at the same time. So the market is growing as a whole. And it's not just that things are moving towards core games. And that's essentially the trend. I think both are growing. What do you think, Chris? Look, Newzoo does a good job with a lot of different things, and I, I their data is is really solid for analyzing markets. But these this is another example of a report that is grossly inaccurate and misleading, right? And super biased, right? Because you know they're dealing with like the Arm company. It, 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 it's co-sponsored by Arm, which is like wants high fidelity to work out. So I, anyway. I, I agree with her or whoever wrote this that the fidelity is growing, right? It is growing from a very low level to where it is now. My estimate's around 20%. And the only games in the top 20, and you can look at this yourself, it's not that fucking complicated in the West is Fortnite, Contest of Champions, and PUBG. Those are the ones that I would consider high fidelity, right? Call and, of Duty. Well, Call of Duty, but I, I don't think it's in the top 20 uh, for 2020 anyway. But so, it's all very concentrated in, 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 in shooters, right? And racing and, and fighting RPGs, fighting RPGs specifically, not RPGs, right? Because the ones that are making money on RPGs are not high fidelity, like Star Wars, got content, whatever, all those games, you know? So this is what I don't like about Newzoo, generally speaking. It's the same complaint, is they put out these flashy high, high, high headlines. They partner with biased and incentivized partners to push a narrative to pull people in the wrong fucking direction, right? So if shooters are 50% of the high fidelity games, then yes, make a fucking high fidelity shooter, right? But if four, but shooters only represent like 5% of the overall revenue, right? So that, that, you know, okay, that makes sense for that small segment of the market, right? But if you're making games that are not shooters or not, you know, like high fidelity fighting games, make it low to mid fidelity, right? And so don't listen to fucking Nuzu, listen to what makes sense, right? If you're making a puzzle game, you're not making it high fidelity, right? I mean, 95% of the business is like low fidelity in that in that sense, like 95% of the genre is that fidelity. So we've seen some success recently with Genshin and, and other games like that, but that it's a very narrow, narrow part of the overall business, right? And they're not, obviously not, they're not putting that in a headline, right? <laughs> because it doesn't sell reports. I mean, let's be it honest. It doesn't support their, their platform. You know who loves this kind of shit is fucking Apple, right? Apple wants to sell devices, right? Yeah, so pitch this idea. It's all high fidelity, all high fidelity, right? Push, 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 right? Because, yeah, you, obsolescence, like it, it creates obsolescence for the hardware. But it doesn't make sense from a, from a strategic perspective from all the public, you know, developers that are out there that are trying to compete in mobile, right? Don't spend $30, $50 million making a high fidelity game. It's ridiculous, right? And, and, and anyway, so th that's what bugs me about these guys. They, they, well, they well stop. let's let's be honest. So first of all, uh, the report itself, like we haven't gone through the report in details, like we're talking only about um, titles and clickbait titles in uh, that, that come in through different report, different sites that cite the report and kind of take one liner out of there and a couple of lines and basically, um, you know, um, boost it up with with one sentence that is a 47 page report. So I think they're more balanced in what they're showing. I do, but I do see how they've kind of bundled a lot of games to call them high fidelity, where 
you would we would actually call it more like mid-core or core games kind of bundled all together and saying that the mid-core and core games are growing, which is true, uh, but not all of them are high fidelity. I think if I would go back to the report, they would put in Galaxy of Heroes and AFK Arenas under uh, high fidelity games. Yeah, no, so, wrong. So it's, um, it, you know, I, I understand what you're saying and, and they actually describe high fidelity a bit differently. Uh, they essentially described as, as, as mid-core games, but I suggest that everybody downloads this report who is interested in it because it's a, it's free report to download and kind of see the data for themselves. Uh, they are right in many sense, but I understand that also by partnering with these type of, uh, uh, you know, with partners like Arm, of course, they're going to push a certain type of narrative that helps with their business and it's PR for their business. So you have to just keep that in mind as you're going through, but the data is still there. You just have to analyze it a little bit more. Well, and what I will agree, though, that what is true is that in Asia, high fidelity is everything, yeah. right? Like, I mean, high fidelity is a huge percentage of the overall market. So that is, is definitely true. Um, but you have to ask yourself, why do you think it's not as big of a deal here as it is in Asia, right? Yeah. Yeah, maybe they, because yeah. they don't have consoles, right? Yeah. Uh, I don't know, maybe, right? Or maybe there's no alternative than mobile in Asia? Maybe, right? Like. Like those are the questions. And if you're building a game for the West, it doesn't fucking matter what's happening in Asia, right? It doesn't, it really doesn't, right? It, it may be a sign of things to come and how the market will evolve over time. That could be, right? But, but in terms of what the consumer is interested in in the West, like the data is there. It's really freaking obvious. And it hasn't really changed for the last decade. If you Especially look at on it, the right? download side, that's where you see what it is today. But but yes, and they're trying to say what's in the future. Anyway, let's move ahead. Yeah. So, <laughs> Nuzu is jumping into another I hate podcast. On Nuzu. I hope she doesn't reach out to me again because she seems so nice. You yeah, know, she, now I have to like, yeah, they're, they're, I got to get on the nice. phone with her. We don't have anything bad to say about it. It's just like we're just analyzing the report. <laughs> anyway, uh, match three. Match 3 team at Turkey's Dream Games raises $155 million at $1 billion valuation. So Dream Games, uh, we have a deconstruction and deconstructor of fun uh, of their uh, latest title or the, their only title, which just uh, Royal Match. That's, I think that's, that's the, the name of the title. Anyway, this was second institutional round co-led by Index Ventures and Makers Fund. Other investors included Boulderton Capital, IVP, and Cora. Uh, the game has more than 6 million monthly active users. And of course, as a summary, this is uh, in the beginning of the year, I think they raised 50 million from Index and Makers uh, and Boulderton as well. And I think this is just a huge boost for a Turkish ecosystem that is you know, hot, flying high after Peak and Gram. There was Rolik, uh, bigger games, dream games. There's a ton of hyper casual publishers, casual publishers. So uh, it, it feels like uh, Istanbul is the place to be if you want to make games. Um, they're getting funding, their games are growing and, and you know, they're, they're pretty much just killing it. So uh, congratulations to Dream Games. I would, uh, I would just, I, would know, I, I don't know if <clears throat> the reason, uh, they raised a massive pre-seed too, like, like um, paper prototype. I think it was six mil or something. Yes. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, I think it was something like that. And then they went. These are XP guys, if I'm correct. Yeah. yeah. So they uh, so so they raised the, uh, my understanding is they raised the pre-seed like just 7.5 pre-seed or seed yeah. uh, paper prototype. They raised it in like two weeks. Yes. Like Dude. it was they I mean, but I think the, the name of the company, I, I, I don't know if this is true or not, but it, it, it could be. 
it's a dream team. It's like they had like a lead designer from Peak. It was just a bunch of, I think it was a bunch of ex-Peak people. Oh, I see what you did there. I see what yeah. you did there. And, and so, I mean, they were just, I, I think like, uh, you know, what this shows is just how much value you can create with games so quickly. I mean, I was texting a friend of mine today and like, this has to be the fastest unicorn valuation for a mobile gaming company in history. I don't, I mean, they're, the company's what, like a year and a half, two years old? I mean, yeah, they went absolutely. from... Dude, they have one game. They have one game. But yeah, they have one game. But I mean, if they're valued at what? It was a billion. Yeah, one billion. billion. This this game could be a billion dollar game. Yeah, there's there's no doubt in my mind that this game could generate a billion dollars in revenue in the next, let's say, three to five years. So then, are they worth a billion? I think so. I mean, with this with this team, I I just think like you've got an all star team, you've got a massive market, and you've got just everyone sort of acknowledging like the value construction of mobile games mobile games is just so it's so incredible um the the the, 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 the capacity to create value with just a single title and reach a, just a gigantic audience mm-hmm. with a game like this and with, with the right team in place um it's really incredible and i think turkey is just it's they're at the forefront of this they're just they're just pumping out massively you know valuable studios left right and center it's really yeah. incredible to see and Eric, I mean, both Eric's, but, but look at the other uh, graphs of, of Royal Match. Like it's skyrocketing. Like it's making, according to Sensor Tower, it's like 11 million a month in net revenues alone last, last month. And it's just, it's like vertical, <laughs> vertical in terms of downloads and vertical in terms of de- uh, revenue. So of course they're going to get, get funded for, for this. And, and they've, they've done just a fantastic job and it's, yeah, as you said, it's not. It's it might be the first game from this company, but it's not the first game from this dream team. So yeah, um, so and, yeah. and the investors are smart money. I mean, you've got yeah, Balderton in this. Balderton was at in Wooga. Balderton was in Peak. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got Index. The the partner that led this in Index was uh, COO at King. I yeah. mean, so you've got people that are very intimately familiar with this mark with this space and these categories. Yeah, and this particular point. vertical within mobile gaming. I mean, they know what they're looking at. These aren't exactly. these aren't dummies. Yeah, makers as yeah. well, like only invests into into you know much gaming. So so this is uh, yeah very good investors. And the one thing that's kind of crazy about this game compared to other puzzle games, or this is is it is a puzzle game, right? Or is it? Yeah, it's a, it's a puzzle game. It's a combination like puzzle match game, or is it a match game like? A, sorry, is it like a merge game or is it a puzzle? No, it's game? not a merge. It's just dude. The the the, sorry, the point is the RPI in the U.S. is so fucking ridiculous, dude. It's like. I mean, it's like eight eight dollars in the first couple months. Like, what the, the hell's going on? And it's funny because it looks like a puzzle game from Supercell, like the uh, the art style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like right, Clash right. Of the Alice, and they're like, "Yeah, check this out." <laughs> it's like definitely not a heyday. Oh, they're just killing it. All right. Well, we will see where that ends up. Uh, so, talking about that? Finland, a couple of news from, from Finland. This is more on the, uh, the console side. So, Remedy signs a co-publishing and development agreement with 505 Games. So, they already have a publishing agreement. But this one is focusing on taking control into multi, uh, or introducing a multiplayer into their latest hit title, Control. So, uh, interesting to see what comes out of that. And second one is Housemark being acquired by PlayStation Studios. And of course, Housemark uh, came out with a PS5 title. Um, shit, what was that um, roguelike title? It was um, re re. Oh. Anyway, I, I lost the uh, the name of the title, but um, very good game that was that was you know highly touted on on PlayStation Five, and now they got acquired. 
they've been housemark is an old studio so they've been at it for a long time and, and congrats to the whole team for for an acquisition so this is the second playstation studios in uh playstation owned studios in europe and now like one is gorilla and now one in, in finland so a little bit of a finland news as always um all right the first news story is now this is very mishka like and i'm feeling a little bit dirty but uh <laughs> a buddy of the podcast, <laughs> Martin McMillan, uh, works at uh, VC Pollen, right? And um, he did a piece. Now, this is a total PR piece. I'm, <laughs> I'm being honest here. This is a total PR piece, but 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 I, I, I'm in green light mode. And so this like really caught my eye. Um, is the most obvious thing in the world, but I just need to articulate it. And the way he did it was actually pretty smart. I wish I had thought of it ahead of time. Is that he basically used Invest Game which is another friend of the podcast, a uh, really good good site in terms of doing looking at uh, um, deals that are in the video game space, investgame.com. I would look at that if you're ever interested. But he said over 80% of the acquisitions in the marketplace were self-funded acquisition companies. So that means that they were able to grow their businesses on their own using self-funding, right? And, um, and he basically says that like, in order to maintain position as a publisher of a game and to be able to scale your games, it, it just boosts your chance of successful e exit. Now, this is obviously self-promotion PR because he does this type of you know, funding for self-publishing. And, and if I were to be honest, the title is a bit misleading <laughs> because the analyst is that 80% of the companies that have been acquired, uh, sorry, the, the data suggests that 80% of the companies have been acquired that self-published, not necessarily that get VC investment, but I'm splitting hairs. The fact of the matter is your tension on your game is predicated on the fact that you can grow your game using UA, right? So I know this is obvious, but it's, it's not obvious to some because I still see people bringing things to market that don't make sense, that, that can never scale, grow and scale UA. And so the example of what we just talked about with, uh, with your, your um, dream games is like, they are building games that they know they can scale with UA because the cost of acquisition is lower than the LTV, right? And so it's like the most simple gate possible is that you cannot build like a racing game and expect to be able to spend UA against it, like in this market, right? unless it's like CSR style game, right? That, I mean, it's a bigger, bigger challenge. It's a, more of a mass market game, right? You know, MMOs, MOBAs, you know, action RPGs, like all these games are impossible to scale because you just can't get the, uh, the, the revenue, the LTVs that, that, that are higher than, the, um, than the, the, what you need to spend to attract this audience, right? And I would actually put shooters in that category too, to be honest. Like I think, you know, Call of Duty and PUBG and like Apex, it may be, <laughs> Battlefield maybe, right? But these games have set the zeitgeist into these big brands and that helps them kind of get that scale. But if you're just a, a non-licensed game, like you need to do the analysis on what it costs to acquire them and how much money you're expected to get on the back end. Anyway, it's really that stupid simple, right? And, and, and it should be one of your major gates for ever making a game. And I know it's probably very obvious and everyone's like, looking, you're an idiot, but but it, it just it struck me as just a, a simple, simple thing to talk about because because um, I don't think designers or some designers anyway think think in this way, uh, yeah. particularly everyone at Take Two, right? What the, what are those guys doing? I mean, they're nuts in terms of what they're building. Anyway, um, I like how you always end up in, in insult towards somebody. So so let's, let's well because you need an example, right? You can't just I'm not throwing I'm not 
I don't want to throw things out there and not have examples. Yeah. Like there's a gazillion of them, right? So I, I do have to say a lot of companies are now investing more and more into kind of understanding the marketability and the product viability of, of the game that they're making. There's, you know, throughout the history, there's been tons of examples. And I've, I've worked a bunch of studios where we just didn't consider marketability as a thing. It was more about just building what we feel is fun and cool and something that you can impress execs yeah. with. But now, uh, pretty much all of the, uh, the the main publishers, like the only way to impress execs is truly, you know, do your homework on, on marketability, on product market fit, um, and move to market, move to market as quick as possible in order to get like the early signs of success. And there's, uh, I remember I was going through some Google Play data and they were showing, they were showing stuff like if players play your game over 40, 40 minutes during their first day, that was like a strong sign of a hit. And so meaning that, that now we have so much data that we can already spot the, uh, the success of the game, not only with the fake app stores that you can do with service like Geek Lab or whatever, but also by putting the game as early as possible so you can get just the first day of gameplay and prove that this is a viable product before you continue investing into it more. So I think this is a, this is a good piece. And, and if they're, and I'm sure that majority of the studios still don't consider marketability as such of a big thing. And they, they approach making games more as an art uh, and a craft rather than business. So I, I think it's a, it's a valuable thing to, to kind of keep hammering on this. Right. And, and to, just to make it even more, uh, specific like so when someone like Supercell builds Brawl Stars or Clash Royale right like of course like Supercell is gonna be able to push these things beyond belief and their, their UA cost is probably far lower because they're just basically have this huge install base but if you actually do the math and say you know Brawl Star, try to build a Brawl Stars that is non-licensed by Supercell like the math doesn't work. The numbers don't work. It doesn't make sense, you know, like, and, 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 and MOBAs, you know, all these things I just already said, it's like, it's like, that's, it's that simple. Right. And, and you can't replicate what fucking Supercell does, like no matter what you can on the flip side, the puzzle games are obviously doing extremely well and the audience is willing to spend, right. It's like easy to replicate that and, and, and duplicate that. Now, not everyone wants to make a puzzle game, I get it. Right. But that I'm just using that as an example. So anyway, all right, moving on. Moving um, on. All right. Let's talk oh, about EA. EA. So EA, uh, this is a verge article. EA continues to spend big mobile games with 1.4 billion play acquisition. So uh, EA purchased Playdemic, known for Golf Clash, from Warner Media for $1.4 billion. Uh, before that, in February, EA spent $2.1 billion on purchasing Glue. So we've covered EA's renewed interest in mobile on, on the Deconstructive Fun newsletter on This Week in Games. And it's really been a major shift after signing Jeff Karp, who joined from Big Fish Casino, uh, not Big Fish Casinos, from, from Big Fish. Uh, previous to that, EA's, EA has been for years kind of an outsider on mobile. Uh, we've seen their revenues decline steadily, not too much, but, but you know, steadily just declining and not growing with the market. Um, they, they had their very impressive live game portfolio that they operated most likely very, very, um, very cost, cost efficiently. They got games like Sim, SimCity, Real Racing, a Galaxy of Heroes, all the sports game, NBA, FIFA, Madden. So, so pretty broad portfolio and um, yeah, but they didn't launch any new games. They got, they had 
in my opinion, a lot of structural plot problems. They were very slow, uh, very expensive, most likely had unreal expectations for the games that they were making. And, and overall, looking from the side, uh, they, they had some, uh, some challenges with performance marketing, uh, not maybe the, uh, the most cutting edge performance marketing teams. And all of this, in my opinion, kind of led them to quickly shutting down new games that they felt weren't reaching the very high expectation that they had when they finally were launched. As an example, there was the Sims game that was developed out of Redwood for a very long time. When it came out, it, it, they kind of, you know, not killed it, but put it in live ops very quickly. Command and Conquer, another example that, that was in development for quite a while. Uh, after launch, they quite quickly put it into to live service instead of what we've seen with most successful games is, is growing them steadily. So it was, so based on that, it was clear that they had very, very high expectations for these games. And if they didn't deliver on day one, um, they, they kind of, you know, put the, put the lid on them. So as consolidation heated up, EA wasn't also able to get any kind of a deals done. Uh, I don't know how hard they tried, but it looked, it looked like they were looking from the side and now they're joining the party uh, fashionably late. And I think they're kind of paying for it. So why they bought Playdemic, I think, well, first of all, it was on sale. That, that's clear. Um, secondly, it adds very meaningful, very sustainable revenue to EA's portfolio. And that's great for their mobile business. And it fits really well with their strategy that they came out with of owning sports on mobile. And currently, they do have a very broad portfolio on mobile, uh, on sports and mobile. But another one who's, who's gunning for that sector is actually Miniclip that is owned by Tencent. So the question is, is Playdemic worth 1.2 billion? Uh, of course, we don't know the deal structure of this 1.2 million. Uh, 1.4. 1.4, yeah, 1.4. Uh, what we know thus far is that they've made around 600 million in net revenues till date. For reference, Empires and Puzzles has made 850 million till date and was acquired for roughly 1 billion, uh, 1 billion euros or dollars when you count in the... Um, uh, everything, all the payments that came afterwards. I think it's going to go over a billion. Um, the game is, uh, game Cl Golf Clash is steadily making around 11 million net revenue in month, steadily. So in comparison, FIFA is 7.5, even as the Euro championships are, are currently being played. Uh, and as another EA acquired title, Design Home, uh, peaked in April, it makes roughly 9 million a month in net revenues, according to Sensor Tower. So in other words, Golf Clash becomes their second biggest mobile title right after Galaxy of Heroes that fluctuates during the, uh, due to the events and, and all kind of uh, stuff between 11 to 17 million net revenue a month. But um, yeah, so even in, in very optimistic calculation, this 1.4 would be about six times their gross revenue of Golf Clash, assuming they don't decline um, over the next six years and, um, and hold on to their, to their run rate. Now, when we're talking about holding on to the run, run rate of, of Golf Clash, um, there are a lot of competitors in this, in this specific, very niche, uh, very niche um, audience for, for this very niche audience. So uh, Golf Clash itself accounts for one in every $5 spent in US on games. Uh, but other golf games are also very, very US he heavy. So we got Golf Rivals from a Chinese publisher whose name I, I think I forgot. Uh, but they're almost identical game. Uh, they get a little bit more installs a month uh, and it, they're already making half of what Golf Clash is making and catching up every single month since 2018. 
Well, I also mentioned Miniclip and they came out first, first with Golf Battles. Uh, that game didn't quite scale up. It was, you know, okay game, but now they have a second golf game called Ultimate Golf and it's scaling up really nicely and now is the third largest golf game on the market. Now, we can make an assumption that, that EA is going to tie in IPs to this. Uh, there is an IP-based golf game called WGT. Uh, it's the, uh, I believe, the only IP-based golf game in the market. Um, it has made 55 million net revenue with about 25 million stalls. Again, I don't know how the quality of this game, the monetization of this game. Um, so it might be a lot of things to improve. But um, of course, EA has the PGA Tour and it's an opportunity on paper. But I do have to say that Golf Clash as a game, I've played it a lot. It's, it's quite arcadey. Uh, it's not a third person view of the, of, you know, of the game. And, and I doubt that very hardcore approach to it will, would resonate that well. But then again, Playdemic has a lot of experience of making a golf, golf game. So they probably can make another golf game that is um, more geared towards that PGA uh, realistic audience, and that way EA can actually capture. Uh, okay, all right. New hold on, hold on, man. I, I got to correct you here for a second. Okay, uh -huh. WGD, WTD Golf is a high fidelity, amazingly yeah. visual game, yes. right? That is geared towards super core. Yes. We actually looked at them when I was at, at Kabam. These like what what this game is 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 it's a more arcadey game, and they're and they're building. You know, the tennis clash is there mm -hmm. as well, and so they could leverage the PGA and Tiger to you know upsell this but still it's a casual game so it's not really yeah. geared towards golf fans right exactly. so i don't know if that that license is all that valuable so that's that's what i was trying to say is like because of the style of the gameplay and you know there's there's the uh, the tap the tap it's it's a really fun golf clash is an excellent game but i but i exactly that's that's what i would say I, I don't see it resonating to a core audience it could i again i'm not a golfer um but anyways so finally if we talk about success in m a like ea has a has a you know track record of, of buying a lot of companies a lot of great ones uh, but when they ventured outside of their core which is the other uh, triple a like if we especially talk about playfish or popcap none of those worked out long long term of course popcap is still there and playfish kind of got you know busted up with with the whole facebook games and the integration of Glue is still ongoing. We don't know how that will play out. And given that the acquisition and all this consolidation has been done during the uh, the Zoom era, um, it's uh, you know they haven't really worked together. So it's it's very questionable how they are gonna you know gel as a, as a team under under Jeff. So overall, I think Playdemic is a very solid fit for EA. It's an ex Warner Brothers studio, so. I'm sure they know everything about working in a corporation as an autonomous, successful unit. So in that sense, I believe that this is the type of studio that EA can plug in into their um, studio organization. Uh, and overall, I think, you know, it's, it's best and the least riskiest way for EA to move into mobile. They are doing a shooter with Timmy, which is smart. They are doing an internal shooter, which makes sense. Uh, they focus on sports, makes total sense with all their IPs. They focus on live ops, and that's great because they have a, such a wide portfolio of, of, of you know, solid um, forever franchises. And as a wild guess for a future, I think EA will, will keep doubling down on sports. And I was looking at the top grossing sports games. 10 Square is right up there uh, with Fishing Clash that is, in, that is making as much as MLB tap sports at the moment. So 
before I would have wouldn't have seen you know fishing and hunting games being part of EA, but now that EA has acquired Glue, it kind of makes sense because fishing class will clash. Well, yeah, makes total sense. And then hunting clash has essentially replaced Deer Hunter as the premier shooter de facto de facto shooter game on mobile. So I think uh, you know it, it it would make sense. And I think uh, Ten Square, which is a public company out of Poland, they already uh, they did a press release saying that they are looking at a strategic um, some, some kind of a, it was a weird press release, but essentially they, it was talking about somebody looking at acquiring them. And I, you know, my wild guess would be EA since, since they are going so hard on this, uh, sports. What do you think, Chris? Well, I mean, let me just say what you said in like 10 seconds. Yeah. $1.4 billion is a ridiculous price, but it makes strategic sense for EA done. That's it. <laughs> you know, I, you have to put this in perspective, right? They spent 500 million for Respawn, which built Titanfall, Star Wars, and Apex, right? And now they're spending $1.4 billion for a golf clash game? Come on, man. So, I mean, valuations are stretched. Just, we've been talking about this for a while, yeah. right? Um, but for M&A, you know, EA has always fucked this shit up, dude. They're like, they are so bad, right, at M&A. They, they've never really, I mean, there's some good integrations, like DICE was really good. Um, um, I don't know. I can't think of any other Respawn? That good. That's bad. Respawn? Respawn so far has been really, really good. Yeah. So, and, and Vince is really taking a big role within EA's studio. So that, 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 that would be considered one. But, but Playfish, PopCap, Gamefly, Bioware Pandemic. I mean, they shuttered Pandemic and destroyed Bioware over the years. Mythic, you know, the bodies are stacked so fucking high right now in terms of bad acquisitions that you can't, you can't rule out that they'll screw this up, right? And the, the fundamental problem is that they have really good intentions with these acquisitions, but they all end disastrously because they're not managed, right? There's no attention. There's no real strategy. You know, there's lack of resources to actually manage these studios. And or there's over management. They're, they're trying to force force feed things down that people don't want to do, you know, and this, this is the reason that all these things could fall off the rails. Right. But in the short term, though, this looks amazing. Right. For EA, like they're finally making investments um, in in mobile. But uh, integration is going to be critical. And what, what my real big concern with this is that Jeff and team are way over their skis right now. Right. Or whatever the expression is. Right. They don't have the resources to manage all these teams that they're acquiring, you know, like they just don't. And then they have to hire people and make sure that everyone kind of is, is in the fold, right? Um, but to make this point one more time, and I, I really don't want to harp on this too much, they've been sitting on $5 billion in cash for the last decade, last decade, right? And they have almost unlimited access to funds if they were to do acquisitions, right? Um, and they've spent $5 billion in the last six months, right? What the fuck were they doing all this time? You know, like, all these companies are getting acquired around them. Everyone's building up studios and, 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 and 10 cents is acquiring everything. It's like, what have they been doing? And this is like a real failure of, of Andrew and Blake. Like they didn't have a strategy for acquisition, right? And they didn't have a strategy of actually building up teams to not only compete in mobile, but also compete in console, right? And so in some ways this could end very badly because they're trying to integrate all these things at once when they don't have the resources to do so, right? And they, I mean, and they can hire and all that other stuff, but but, but given the money that they've spent on these acquisitions, expectations are going to be high for success here, right? So they can't really stumble. And 
And the and again, the big risk is that they won't be able to manage these studios appropriately. So we'll see over the next six months to a year whether these this performance um, can uh, you know if they can maintain the levels that they have and release new products and be successful. Like that's really the critical thing. Organic, you know, inorganic growth is one thing, but organic growth is much more of a challenge with the acquisitions that you that you get. And that's exactly what Zynga's coming running into right now. Um, and, and, and just the other tangent here is that I was one of my biggest gripes for this last cycle is that all these publishers doubled down on their existing IPs and were able to increase revenue per per user like Madden, FIFA, you know, Call of Duty, et cetera. But none of these publishers really invested in in in, in building teams, right? And building cap capacity, right? And they, and they could have done both. You know, Activision take to lesser degree Ubisoft because they've never met a developer team that they didn't like, right? And they just spend, spend, spend. But, um, but they just didn't really, they didn't make these investments. And now where prices are so freaking high, now they're trying to build capacity right, on mobile or a console which is the wrong time to do it, right? They should have been incubating this stuff ages ago, right? And so they're playing catch up. EA is probably the best out of the group, but but um, but this is gonna be, you know, an interesting thing to watch to see whether they can improve, you know, the amount of games they come out and, and continue to maintain, you know, grow revenue per user. I mean, this is more of a macro, you know, investment thesis thing. So, sure. um, but anyway, I, I applaud them finally getting into mobile, but I think it's a little late and they're way overspending. And I think there's like lots of execution risk around this. Um, so we'll, we'll see how it all. I, I think they have out. to spend. I think they have to spend because they don't have the, uh, the they don't have the track record of acquiring, like Zingham built that track record of acquiring companies. And I think the first acquisitions are always gonna be, you know, a little bit more expensive and 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 they're just building that track record. So, but well, I mean, we were, we were, yeah, but we were saying Zynga's acquisitions were expensive, right? Yeah. And yeah. and they're looking like freaking bargains compared to these, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> it's like they got bottom of the barrel type stuff. Like, uh, I mean, Respawn was an amazing acquisition. I mean, like 500 million for that that group is 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 was a great acquisition. But as I've said before, that was not, that was, <laughs> sorry. That was not the executive team at EA saying, this is strategic. We need to acquire them. This was because Nexon was going to acquire it right from under them, you know, and, and fuck them totally, right? And so it was a reaction, right? And so like this is where I criticize these guys. It's like, what the hell are they thinking, you know? And Vince didn't want to get acquired by EA. He hates fucking EA, right? But but you know, money talks, I guess. But if Vince had held out, you know, he could have he could have uh, maybe he doesn't care anymore. But like anyway, sorry, I don't I don't, I don't want to go on these tangents. Yeah. All right, let's talk about something else. Duinglo. <laughs> Duolingo. I can't even pronounce it, dude. Help me out Duolingo. here. What do we think? I'll, I got a hard out, but I think I can cover it in five-ish minutes. Let's right, so, do it. Duolingo uh, filed their S1. Uh, Duolingo is a freemium language learning app launched in 2011 by two uh, computer science PhDs from Carnegie Mellon. Um, Duolingo popularized the use of gamification to drive engagement in non-gaming apps. So I think a lot of people pointed to Duolingo historically as a kind of canonical gamification example, right? They did the, the badges and the awards for completing, um, yeah. uh, completing you know, tasks and for coming back X days in a row. Um, and uh, you know, why, why, why am I bringing this up on a gaming podcast? Well, I think for that reason, but also because um, Duolingo sort of uh, ties into a lot of the, the themes that, make, uh, that, that, that kind of made 
gaming really popular in this kind of first, uh, this first mobile wave, as I call it. Also, anyone who worked in mobile gaming um, in, in this kind of first act, what I've, what I've called historically the, the mobile gaming's first act, anyone who worked in mobile gaming at that time, the kind of 2012, 2015, 16-ish era, will recognize their chief business officer, who's Bob Meese. Uh, Bob ran Google Play, the Google Play gaming team for a number of years. So, okay, so why, why bring Duolingo up? Uh, I think it's a fascinating case study because it is mobile first. Uh, it is subscription only, it is freemium, and it's, it's a legacy product from 2011, right? It was an early app store pioneer that seemed for a couple of years like it was languishing, like it, it wasn't really growing anymore. Um, and now, you know, it is, it is sort of, uh, I guess, experienced a turnaround and it's seen, you know, pretty tremendous success. So some stats from the S1, it, it grew 2020 revenues to 162 million from 71 million in 2019. So that's 128% growth. Um, it, it hit 36.7 million MAUs at year end 2020 versus 27.3 for 2019. So that's 34% growth. Uh, 1.6 million paid subs at year end 2020 up from 900,000. So that's 77% growth in the year. Subscription bookings were 144 million in 2020. Uh, but I think what stood out to me most from the S1 was, uh, there were a couple of things. One was, was retention. Right? So they had a really great graph that showed first time subscription bookings by user cohort. And they had the, the each, each year's bar chart was just split into two. One was su subs for that year. So first time subs for that year. And then first time, uh, first time subs for any year prior. And uh, for 2020, the current year cohort. So the, the, the percentage of subs, first time subs in 2020 that were uh, acquired that year, that joined the app that year was 53% and the 47% for all years prior. And that proportion of older cohorts had just increased from 2019 to 2020 um, and was on a general, gen uh, general sort of like up upward uh, trajectory for years past as well. So it just shows that that incredible retention and you know their focus on uh, converting these elder players, converting people to subscribers uh, who had been with the app in a freemium capacity for, for potentially years, uh, but, but maybe even just, just new users, like just really focusing on that subscriber uh, increase, uh, that sort of increased subscriber rate. And you saw that happen over time. So the, just the overall subscriber rate in 2017 was, you know, rounded down to zero, right? In 2018, it was 1%. 2019 is 3%. 2024 percent and Q1 2021 is 5%, right? So they just, this team sort of uh, executing this turnaround on the basis of we've got amazing retention. Um, we've got, you know, this, this elder user base that sticks with the app for a really long time. Uh, they had kind of anemic DAU and MAU growth, but we're just going to focus on, uh, you know, building, uh, improving that, that conversion funnel and doing that consistently over the years, right? Um, and then MAU growth obviously uh, uh, was catalyzed by COVID and you did see a jump from uh, 20, 2019 to 2020. But uh, they also focused really intently just from, you know, intuiting from the S1 on, on, on the mix of subs, right? So the 12 month subs revenue was, was 71, or sorry, 12 month subs were 71% of the subscription mix, right? So pushing people into that, into that 12 month, you know, higher ticket sub versus um, the, the sort of like shorter term subs um, and that was up from 57% in 2019 and 47% in 2018. So they got really good at converting people. They got really good, you know, pr presumably uh, from the data at upselling people, getting people into that, you know, that the short-term sub and then upselling them into the longer sub. And, you know, through that, they grew the revenue pretty substantially 2019 and 2020. And now they're, they're, they're doing an IPO, right? I think the other thing I wanted to focus on from the, from the uh, S1 is just how they've 
how they've grown. They essentially do very little or no performance marketing. And, and uh, I kind of want to quote uh, from two places in the S1. This, they, they describe what they, what they call their investment flywheel, and, and I'm quoting from the S1. Um, our learner scale and word of mouth growth allow us to focus our capital investments on product innovation and data analytics, as opposed to brand or performance marketing. The more learners use Duolingo and convert into paid subscribers, the more we were able to invest in, the, in creating an even more delightful, engaging and effective learning experience. And that's, that's just the sort of data flywheel. The more data we get from subs, the more we learn about what people want to subscribe to and, and the better we're able to, to, to convert people to subscribers. And now and I'll quote again, um, related to their historical spending on marketing. This is a quote from our founding in 2011 to the end of 2020, we have grown to our current scale while having spent only $41.8 million in aggregate on external marketing, 27.4 million of which was in 2020. In total in 2020, we spent 22% of revenue on sales and marketing, including the costs of our sales and marketing personnel. And we expect these costs to grow at a slower pace than revenue over time, right? So I think Duolingo looks like a really great public company. They've got stable revenues via subscription mechanics, strong organic growth with the opportunity to ramp up performance user acquisition if needed, and a gigantic market language learning with plenty of room for expansion into new language pairs. So I think Duolingo going public supports my thesis around the mobile app economy second act. Um, this was the thesis that, that I kind of uh, predicated the, the, uh, the launch of my investment syndicate on. So if the first act was characterized by extremes, for example, extreme monetization, extreme growth, extreme marketing spend, all based on the underlying characteristics of an IAP-based IAP premium economy, the second act we're seeing uh, showcases much more diversity of business models, right? You've got, for example, subscriptions, ad revenue. And with these, and with these new business models comes uh, new profiles of businesses that don't need to look the same to be successful, right? So since gaming was so dominant in the first act, it's only logical that we draw parallels with su successful games from that era. But Duolingo gives us the opportunity to create new prototypes of what success looks like for mobile first businesses that aren't games, but, but are, that are still close enough that we can feel comfortable in our analysis. And I think Duolingo is just a perfect example of that. There's, there's, a, there's a, enough of a proximity to games through the sort of gamification that they introduce to the mobile ecosystem and the way they operate the business and the way they think about the metrics. There's enough of a proximity there to do like a thorough analysis and really understand what we're looking at. But it's different enough to say, hey, other mobile first businesses can, can be very successful and become public, uh, successful public companies too. And I think that's what uh, Duolingo's S1 provides us with. What's the revenues of Duolingo these days? It's most, it's almost completely subs. They have, they started up a business, which was uh, uh, certifications, but I, I don't, I don't have the S1 open in front of me, but it was something like 10 or 12% was of the revenue. The rest of it was just subs. How much are they making a, a year? 200, well, 160. 160. 160. Oh yeah. That's pretty good. And then um, as you know, as the restrictions go away and people travel more, then they're going to probably increase, probably grow as people are studying different languages as they're traveling more. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's true. I think also it's just a massive market. Um, so I think, you know, uh, they've got almost an unlimited, you know, kind of headroom to ex expand. You know, I, I worked with the language learning app uh, for a while, uh, a couple of years ago. And, and you know, the, the way they think about this is through language pairs, right? So you've got many languages to English, right? You're trying to teach Spanish speakers English or trying to teach, you know, uh, Mandarin speakers English. Well, you, you can then expand, you know, and, and then the, the pairs get sort of like, uh, you know, kind of less and less significant, right, in terms of number of people. Uh, but you can expand into any number of those pairs and grow, you know, grow revenue, grow. And then, and then you know, as those become more and more niche, they're, they're alone in the market, right? And so you can sort of monetize them better. It would be interesting oh God, how, I, how many I'm such a, people learn, like, after uh, all, like, you know, like, yeah. 
I'm, I'm such an idiot. I didn't read through what you did. And I'm like, the Duolingo sounded so familiar because I knew I couldn't pronounce it before. My kids yeah. use this all the time. <laughs> they have this. Yeah. I get notifications from Duolingo because my email is on their account about you got to finish this level. You got to do this level. Okay. I, I Sorry. Now I know what this is. Like, sorry, I'm coming in totally ignorant, but that is really cool that, that we finally see like a non-gaming app kind of like make it out here, you know, yeah. um, and get the, get the attention. That's cool. It's um, all right. I think Eric has to go. All right. Talk to you later. Um, so let's do a proper ending for this one. Thank you everybody for tuning in. <laughs> we appreciate all the feedback. So keep sending that. We were going through the feedback we see on the uh, Apple podcast. So that's always appreciated as well as the feedback that we get directly on LinkedIn or Twitter. If, if we're ever on Twitter, Eric Kress is not on Twitter. I'm not on Twitter, but no. Suford is on Twitter all the time. <laughs> Dude, some of the reviews on iTunes were hilarious. I hadn't read them in a long time and my wife was reading them. <laughs> I'm like, Dude, they're like really clever. Um, so uh, I think I might read a few of those next week yeah, <laughs> just because so, they are pretty funny. And we'll do a questionnaire. Like uh, I think we, we got sent a questionnaire that we could use on this podcast. So I'll try to do it for next week that will be in the description notes because we want to know more about our listeners. There's 3000 people listening almost to every episode. So it's kind of wild, <laughs> but, um, but um, yeah, would be, would be very interested to hear more about you guys. And, and again, if we got something wrong or if we you want us to cover something specific next week, just hit us up uh, either LinkedIn or Twitter, or just email at info at deconstructorfund.com and we will cover it. Or if you don't want us to talk about it and you want it to be anonymous, we get that a lot as well. We won't mention you. So just, you know, connect. On that note, have a great rest of the week and we'll tune in next week. Bye.